following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Oh, Father, we do thank you for many blessings you have just poured out abundantly on us and at times those blessings come in the form of challenges and difficulties come in the form of trials and hard things Lord we know that you use all of these things in order to conform us to the image of your son and that you Lord desire to use these events in our lives that you discipline us at times for our good for us to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that your intent is not to harm your church, but to grow it and strengthen it. And Lord, I pray this morning as we look to your word and what you have to say in Zechariah 4 and that message you spoke through the prophet to your people so long ago, that Lord, that message would be clear to us and that we would know what it means and, and how to apply it by your grace. Depend on your spirit now to give us understanding and to enable us to carry out your will, as we see in your word. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, <clears throat> I brought something this morning, and I know I did not get this at the garage sale like Jason got his cat. Um, this is a carved nativity scene, and I got it about 15 years ago. I know you can't see everything, but there's a Mary and Joseph, the baby, and a couple little sheepies there. But um, I got this in Bethlehem about 15 years ago from a a man on the street there who claimed he carved it. Now, probably it was made in China or something like that. But um, what intrigued me about this was not just the, the carving, which is a cool nativity scene from Bethlehem, but, but that it's made of olive wood. It comes from an olive tree. And when I saw that and, and heard that what it was made from, I thought, you know, when I think of Israel, I think of olive trees. I mean, that's very common in Israel, and it was especially so in ancient Near Eastern times, in the biblical days uh, olive trees were prevalent and they were extremely important for the Jewish economy, for the economy really of the whole region. Um, olive trees uh, provide olive oil, which was used for skin care, for sickness, for cooking, for providing light to, to fuel the lamps. Mediterranean climate is a, a, a place where these olive trees can thrive. In fact, the Garden of Gethsemane was likely an olive tree orchard, Mount of Olives, where Jesus prayed. In fact, Gethsemane means oil press, by the way. And so this Mediterranean climate is conducive to the, the thriving of these olive trees. And it's believed today there are some olive trees currently in Israel that are at least a thousand years old. They can live a long time. And I mention olive trees this morning because we're going to be seeing olive trees in our passage today. For they play a central role in Zechariah's fifth vision. And it is a vision that he is given to communicate to us the necessity of how we are to rely on God and our need to rely on him and how we do that and also how he works in his world. So if you could please uh, turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. Again, this vision we have in chapter 4 is the fifth vision in a series of eight visions which came to him in one night... And they came in the midst of a key construction project taking place in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of God's temple. 
And that project, as we learn from in Ezra and also in Haggai and Zechariah, that project was led by two individuals, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. Zerubbabel being the civic leader, Joshua, the religious leader. And Ezra 3.2 indicates that when the exiles first arrived from Babylon, coming back to Judah, that these two men in particular were instrumental in getting the altar rebuilt on the Temple Mount and in getting the foundation of the temple built. But in doing that, they faced many obstacles from hostile opposition to lethargy to a lack of resources to doubts to discouragement. And so the work stopped for almost two decades until God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to support the work. And particularly, Ezra 5.2 says, to come alongside Joshua and Zerubbabel to, to, to support them as leaders. And I mention these two leaders because they are, in fact, the focus in these two central visions in Zechariah's series of eight visions. Last week, we saw Joshua as a central figure in the fourth vision. Joshua, the high priest, and the focus of that vision was on the spiritual needs of the people and and their need for forgiveness, their need to be holy before God, and how God promised through his Messiah, who, in fact, was the one speaking in that fourth vision, how he promised to forgive them. And to make them holy through the work of Christ. The next vision we're going to look at changes from focus on Joshua to Zerubbabel. In fact, the message in this vision is primarily given to Zerubbabel because ultimately he was the one responsible for this temple to be built. Joshua came along and supported the people in his role as a religious leader, as high priest. Zerubbabel was the civic leader of the people. He was the one who was ultimately given the responsibility to make sure this temple got built and to lead them in that fashion. And so this fifth vision addresses him specifically and through him the people. And it focuses on the key message of this vision is their need to rely on God to get it done. And so with that, please stand in honor of the Lord's word as I read from Zechariah chapter 4. And as I read, I want you to see, one, see if you can spot the olive trees, and two, see if you can figure out how they are connected. What is their significance in relation to the vision that he's given? Zechariah 4 verse 1, Zechariah says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowls on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered a second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? 
So he answered me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, so here we're given another vision. And within this vision, there actually are two messages. The first message comes in verses 1 to 7. And that message prompts the question, who are you relying on? The second message here in chapter 4 is verses 8 to 14. And that prompts the question, do you see the big picture? This vision If you notice in verse 1, it begins a little differently than the other visions. Normally we're told in the other visions, and we'll see this in the subsequent ones, that that the the people talked, or or Zechariah, he says, then I looked up and saw. And it appears normally Zechariah, as he's given a vision, he's sitting there thinking, contemplating it, and then he looks up and he sees another one. But in this particular case, in verse 1, it's either he's so deep in contemplation or perhaps he's mentally exhausted from, from what he has seen so far that, that it's like the angel has to shake him. The interpreting angel is shaking him to see if he's, he's uh, conscious enough to see this next vision. And in fact, we see it in the angel's question in verse 2 that even asks him, what do you see? Zechariah here is shown, shows us that indeed he is awake. As he begins to describe what he saw. Notice here the angel of the Lord, by the way, it says he returned. He was absent from the third vision. Perhaps he was part of the entourage, the attendants around Christ that we saw in that third vision. But, but anyway, wherever he was, he returns here and he, he rouses Zechariah to get, a, get his attention. And then Zechariah describes what he sees. Notice the first thing that he mentions in verse 2 that he sees is a golden lampstand. Probably the same type of lampstand that was found in the tabernacle or in the temple. The one that was first built in Moses' day. Exodus 25 describes this lampstand as as a golden, made of pure gold. And there were three branches on the one side of it and three branches on the other. And there was a lamp on the top of each branch as well as in the center. Seven lamps on this golden lampstand. Some believe that the lampstand that Zechariah saw was different than this one, that it was actually a cylindrical pedestal with a bowl on top and having seven spouts that were pinched around the rim of the bowl to hold the wick for the, for the burning of the oil. They base this uh, assumption on the fact that uh, archaeology has shown many findings that show this was a more common type of lamp in Zechariah's day. But I think a stronger case can be made biblically that this lampstand that Zechariah sees is actually just like the one that was found in the temple, in the tabernacle. I say that for one reason, is that the Hebrew word for lampstand here, menorah, is used almost exclusively to refer to the lampstand within the tabernacle or the temple. There's only one or two occasions where it refers to something different in the Old Testament. Secondly, the description here of this menorah, this lampstand, it sounds very similar to the one given in Exodus 25, where he describes it's of pure gold and there are seven lamps on it, just like the one that was built for the tabernacle. And thirdly, since all of these visions, they center upon the temple, right? They're given in order to encourage the people to build the temple. And so I think it would seem rather strange if if a different kind of lampstand than than the one that's used in the temple would be shown to Zechariah here. I believe it's the exact lampstand or or very close similar one that was seen in the tabernacle and in the temple. I don't think there's anything unique or different about the lampstand itself. It would be very apparent to Zechariah. This is one that was commonly used in the worship of the Lord. But there were a few other unusual items around it. Fact three that he notes. If you notice there, he first mentions above the lampstand is a bowl. 
Now, the word there can be on or upon the lampstand, or it can mean above. And so, either it's affixed to the lampstand, or it's hovering above the lampstand. And coming out of that bowl, he mentions a second thing. He mentions these spouts, or the word literally there is like the idea of a conduit. It literally means to to pour. So, there's some kind of pipe or conduit coming from the bowl into each of the seven lamps. Now, the number of conduits are... Uh, are not necessarily known for sure. The, the Hebrew there is literally seven and seven to the lamps. So it could either be seven plus seven pipes, that'd be 14 coming to the lamps, two for each lamp, or it could be seven times seven, which would be 49 of them, seven to each lamp. We don't know exactly for sure, but either way it would convey the idea of an abundant supply of oil, wouldn't it? That each lamp has plenty of oil in order to remain lit. So in this vision, in this picture, what do we have here? We have the lampstand, golden lampstand. We have the bowl above it. We have the pipes coming out of the bowl into the lamps. But there's a third feature, a third unusual thing that Zechariah notices. And what is that? Right. An olive tree on each side of the lampstand. And we learn in verse 12 that there's a a golden pipe coming from each of those olive trees into the bowl where the... So the implication is the oil coming directly from the trees into the bowl and then into the lamps. So what we have here is a temple lampstand with a continuous supply of oil to keep it burning. And at this point, as Zechariah often did, after he sees these things in front of him, he asks the question, well, what are these? Again, we know that he knows what the items were. He was able to describe them very clearly. What he doesn't understand is what they mean. What is the significance of this picture? Then curiously, in verse 5, the angel answers his question with a question. Don't don't you know what these are? That might seem odd. Perhaps it should have been apparent to Zechariah that this lampstand was clearly a self-sustaining lampstand, that it required no human intervention to keep it burning. Back in Exodus chapter 27, one of the Levitical priest's duties was to keep the lampstand burning. Each morning and each evening, they were to come in with some olive oil and pour it into the lamps in order to keep the lamps going as a perpetual flame within the tabernacle before the Lord. But Zechariah's lampstand, there was no such requirement, right? The oil was being supplied. No human intervention was necessary or required since it was coming directly from the trees themselves. But the significance of this was lost on Zechariah because he responds to the angel's question with, No, no, my Lord, I have no idea what's, what's going on here. I don't understand. And that's when the interpreting angel tells him in verses 6 and 7 what the meaning of this picture was. And so as we look at his response, I want you to notice, this is very important, I want you to notice that the focus is not the lampstand but on how the lampstand is being supplied. It's critical that you see this because, and as I was looking at many commentaries this week, there's so much attention on the lampstand and directed there and what it symbolizes, that that it's a symbol of God's presence or of His glory, or that it's representative of the people of God, or it symbolizes their purpose to be a light to the nations, or, or that the lampstand represents the Messiah. And indeed, a case can be made scripturally for each of these. Uh, uh, it symbolizes many of these things. But, but I don't think that's the intentional focus here in this vision given to Zechariah. Because notice, what is the focus of this vision here? Not so much the lampstand, but on the things around it, right? Notice also the angel's response in verse 6. He focuses on the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, notice in verses 11 to 14, they center not on the lamp, but on what is feeding the lamp. 
Attention is drawn back to those olive trees and what they mean and what their significance is. All of these taken together, they show us that the key aspect in this vision is not the lampstand. It is the perpetual supply of oil to the lampstand. What's the point of the vision then? Well, in verse 6 and 7, it's a vision meant to give instruction, a message to the leader, to Zerubbabel, the construction project coordinator. And that message is the well-known phrase. I think we've all heard it before, right? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In fact, we just saw that in a song we just sung. There are several other songs that contain this phrase. Might and power here are synonyms for for power and strength. That word might is often associated with with human resources, with human strength, with, with military capability. The word for power here is a more general term in reference to a person's strength or a person's ability. And so the message that this vision puts forth is it's not human strength, it's not human ingenuity or resourcefulness or intelligence or, or ability that will get this project done. No, Zerubbabel, the focus here, this project will only happen by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the focus of this vision is on the oil. The fuel which supplies the lampstand. Just as human effort is not needed to keep this lampstand burning. It it doesn't need the priest to come in every day, twice a day, to keep fueling this lamp. Because it is receiving the fuel directly. In the same way that this lamp does not need human effort to keep it going. So too the temple will only be built by God's spirit. Enabling them to do it. See the picture? Does the message make sense? And the fact that the oil plays such a prominent role in this vision makes sense because particularly in the Old Testament, oil is a very common symbol for the Spirit of the Lord. For example, if you remember Saul, when Samuel, uh, when he went to Samuel and Samuel in 1 Samuel 10 anointed him, remember to be king, what did he use to anoint Saul? Oil, right? And right after that, Samuel tells Saul that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him mightily and he would prophesy. Or later, when Saul had failed and the second king of Israel, King David, was to be identified by Samuel and anointed, 1 Samuel 16, 13 says that then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. There's a connection here. Between this oil and the anointing for the task that's being given to these individuals as king and the Holy Spirit coming upon them to empower them to do the task. Isaiah 61.1, the Messiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. There's that word anointed again. The picture of the oil being poured out as a consecration upon the individual and the Spirit of the Lord being connected to that associated with that. And there's several other passages that also describe that relationship and show this connection between the oil and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so can you see here then this vision, this lampstand, that this direct, abundantly abundant supply of oil, of olive oil, would be a perfect illustration for the main point of the message. Zerubbabel, you're not going to get this done if you rely on your own efforts, on your own strength to do it. But if, if you're empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, this thing's going to happen. This building's going to get built. This temple's going to get done. That's the point being conveyed in verse 7. 
Nothing's going to stop it from happening when God's Spirit is the one doing the work. Where God says there, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And some think that's a reference to the mountain of rubble standing before them of the temple and that they need to clear it. And But I think it's really just being served here as a metaphor for any opposition or hindrance or difficulty. We use that metaphor even today. You know, there's a, a mountain of obstacles in front of me. And indeed, that was the case for Zerubbabel. Because, again, put yourself in his shoes. Think about this for a minute. Zerubbabel here is the, given the responsibility to get this temple built. He tried that almost 20 years earlier. The same guy tried to lead the same project, and it failed. It failed. The attempt flopped because they gave in to fear and intimidation from their local enemies. And Ezra 5 tells us that when they undertook this temple construction reboot and started over again, guess what happened? The local enemies who did not want the Jews there again rose up in opposition to the project. And in addition to that, Haggai 1-2 indicates that some of the people were apathetic. In fact, there was a common saying going around Jerusalem that, you know, someday we'll get to the temple, someday it'll get built. Or later on in Zechariah 4 verse 10, it appears that there were some who looked upon this project as insignificant or, or a small thing. They, they even despised it, looked at it with contempt. Like, oh, that's, that temple thing's no big deal. It's not that important. And so Zerubbabel faced these challenges, these difficulties. And in addition to that, think about the temple that Solomon built. Do you know what was required or how that took place? He had conscripted almost 200,000 workers. And it took them seven years And they had almost an unlimited supply of resources of gold and silver and wood. And so here is Zerubbabel with far fewer workers, with a discouraged workforce, with an apathetic workforce, which has just recently, a few months earlier, gotten back on the project. And he had very little resources. Pretty daunting task in front of him, isn't it? So what's God's message to him? Zerubbabel? Rely on my spirit. And this project's going to get done. All these obstacles will be removed. They'll be like a level plane. This mountain of difficulty will be flattened out in front of you. If you rely on my spirit. All the hindrances, the difficulties, the lack of resources, the size of the task, the discouragement. All these things will be taken care of. Rely on my spirit, Zerubbabel. And there will be one day, a day of grand celebration when this temple is finished. And people will be crying out, he says here, grace, grace to it. Look at God's favor upon us. We did it through his kindness, through his mercy. So he's, he's giving this, this picture to Zerubbabel in these two verses. And that, I think, would be very encouraging to him, don't you? To hear, you know what? God's behind this. My spirit will do the work. Don't worry about your own strength getting it done. That's what happened before. But not this time. Yes, Zerubbabel, you've been down this same road without success. But notice here that the the message to him was not this, Zerubbabel, just keep on going. You can do it. You're a strong and resourceful and intelligent person. You can make it happen. Just don't give up. Was that the message he was told? No. That's probably, again, the kind of thinking that got them in trouble the first time. The message here is to the contrary. Don't look to yourself. Don't rely on your own strength. Don't rely on your own abilities and your own resourcefulness. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I'm reminded of that passage in Psalm 73 that uh, Steve read from earlier. 
in those verses in Psalms 33, excuse me, he says, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. A couple of verses later, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Didn't we see example after example of that in Joshua as they went out to battle? Yes, the battle took place. Yes, they had to fight. But ultimately, who was giving them the victory? It was God, not their own strength. Beloved, how important and timely this message is for us, especially given what we heard from Jeff earlier, especially where we are at. This is a vital truth that we must grasp. We have to grasp it firmly if we would accomplish anything for Christ, if we would bear any lasting fruit for Him. We have to understand the message being given here to Zerubbabel. Because, beloved, I, I don't think how, uh, that, that we realize just how dependent we are on God's Spirit. I really don't think we, we understand that as fully as we should. Let, let me remind you a few things from Scripture about what it says that the Holy Spirit does and His involvement within His universe. God says in Genesis 1-2 that the Holy Spirit was active in creation. It says the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the surface of the waters. We heard earlier in Psalm 33-6 that the breath of the, His mouth, that's a, often a reference to the Spirit of God, the breath of His mouth created the heavens. Elihu rightly declares in Job 33.4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Do, do you realize you exist because of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit also empowers people to do important tasks. Um, one great example is back in Exodus 31 in regards to the building of the tabernacle. There was a man named Bezalel who was given responsibility to do that. And it says in Exodus 31.3, God says, I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And by the way, in that same chapter, Bezalel builds the first lampstand that was to be put in the tabernacle. But he did it by the Spirit of God. Numbers 11.25 says that the Spirit of God came upon the 70 elders who assisted Moses in judging the people in the wilderness. Numerous times we read in Judges the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon the judges to empower them and the work that they were given to do. One time when a lion came rushing at Samson, for Judges 14.6 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily, so that he, he tore the lion as one tears a young goat. Isaiah 63.11 says, The Spirit of God was in the midst of the people while they were in the wilderness. And Nehemiah 9.20 says it was the Holy Spirit giving them instruction. So as Moses spoke, it was the Holy Spirit giving them understanding giving Moses the words and giving the people the ability to understand those words and apply them. David says in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by him as he penned the Psalms. And in one of those Psalms, Psalm 51, remember, David asks, let not thy Holy Spirit be taken from me. Right? He understood. He wasn't talking there about salvation, but he understood the importance of the Spirit's presence to empower him, to enable him, to, to direct him, to help him. It is God's Spirit who spoke through the prophets. As Nehemiah 9.30 says, You admonished your people by your Spirit through your prophets. In fact, Micah notes this in Micah 3.8 when he says, I, have, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord to make known to Israel his sin. Holy Spirit would direct the prophets of where to go and what to say. In fact, sometimes even physically carrying them to a different place. Ezekiel was one example, or Elisha. Or even you remember Philip that happened to him in Acts 8? 
It says of the Messiah in Isaiah 11.1 1, that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And the Messiah himself says prophetically in Isaiah 61.1, 1, I read a moment ago, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus Christ, in his ministry. Acts 10.38 says that God anointed Jesus. Notice the anointing terminology there. Anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 28, when he was accused of being Beelzebul, he said that he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. That's how he performed his miracles. Or in Luke 4, 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Then Luke 4, 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. See, even Jesus Christ himself as the Messiah, as a man, when he came to earth, He was led and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2.4 says that God testified to the apostles by gifts of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives the power to proclaim the gospel. As Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8, When the Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It is the Holy Spirit who makes that gospel message effective. Jesus said in John 16, 8, it would be the Spirit that He is sending who would convict the world of sin. It is the Holy Spirit who saves us. Titus 3, 5, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing. How? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 3, 5, it is by the Spirit we are born again. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells us the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding of the Word of God and helps us to understand the message of salvation. He is the one, the Holy Spirit, who places us in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 says. He is the one who brings unity. He is the one who gives gifts to believers in order to build believers up to be more like Christ. He is the one who gives assurance of salvation, 1 John 3 says. He is the one who sanctifies us. And on and on and on it goes. I'm running out of breath. I haven't even touched on all that the Holy Spirit does and has done and is doing and will do in this world and particularly in the church of Jesus Christ. We're all dependent on Him. Every living creature is dependent on the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in this world and particularly His children. That's the picture here. Do you see how much we need, how much you need the Holy Spirit? Without the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, you wouldn't be alive. You would not be saved. You would not be, without the Holy Spirit, any use in the church. You would not grow in Christ. Without the Spirit, you'd have no assurance. Your prayers would be inappropriate. You would not understand the Scriptures. You would not have fellowship with God. Without the Holy Spirit, you would not know Christ. But so often we treat Him like a backup quarterback who gets called into the game when the first stringer gets injured or he's not doing very well. But beloved, he is the first string quarterback. And by the way, he's the running back and the receiver and the offensive line and the defense and the coach. He's the heir in the football. Every aspect is dependent on the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enables. He is the one who empowers. He is the one who strengthens. He is the one who motivates. He is the one who gives the capability to do anything if it would be done for God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And if you want to do anything for God, if you want to be used of God, 
if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to achieve anything of eternal value, if you want to do anything that is of significance in God's kingdom, then it must be by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And I think we all know this. Have I said anything new that you've never heard before? I think for most of us, we know this. Most of us have heard this verse before. But I want you to think carefully with me right now. I want you to think about this. How many of us live as if it's true? How often do you rely on your own resources? I got this, God. I can handle it. You know, beloved, we we don't pray or we don't look to God unless things get really bad. Now I need to depend on Him. We don't seek Him diligently. We don't get effort to read and understand His Word as much as we should. We don't meditate on His Word. We don't put the work in to memorize it. We don't commune with Christ as we should. We don't invest in relationships with other believers. We don't serve one another as diligently as we should. We we don't exercise our gifts with one another that the Holy Spirit has given. And then we wonder why our walk is anemic. Or we wonder why our church struggles. Or we wonder why our families have issues. We wonder why we don't see ourselves maturing in Christ. We wonder why we don't see revival in our city in Burbank and in the valley. We wonder why there's not stronger unity in our body. We wonder why there's conflict or struggles with finances. We wonder why we struggle with the same sin over and over and don't seem to be growing from it. We wonder why we don't experience the passion for Christ. We know we should have. We know we should have it. We wonder these things and often I think it's because we aren't truly relying on His Spirit. To empower and enable us to have the life that God has designed for us to have in Christ. And you know, as I was thinking about things this week, actually for a while, you know, one of the telltale measures of the health of any church, one of the obvious indications if the church is depending on the Holy Spirit, what do you think it is? It's a commitment to prayer. Beloved, what what does it say about Calvary Bible Church when you look at our prayer sheet and you see last week there were 11 praises and 38 requests among all of us. And even among the elders and deacons, some of those requests have not been updated in months. And I'm guilty of this. But what does that say about us as a church? What does it say about our church when our weekly church-wide prayer meeting is consistently less than 50 people and often less than 20? That we don't need prayer together? Is that the message? That we don't need the body together beseeching God on our behalf for the struggles and issues and, and areas in our lives that we need God to work in? What does it say about our church when a number of us aren't involved in much of anything beyond Sunday morning? Gathering here, what does it say about you if you're not in a fellowship group or a small group or, or a Bible study or an accountability group on a consistent basis? Do, Beloved, the Holy Spirit works through His Word and works through His people. That's how He works. That's how He brings growth in our lives. And I could add to that circumstances, but that's like the plan B. right? God works through His Word and His people. Are you availing yourself of that? Do you have any connection, really a connection, with others in the body of Christ by which the gifts that God has given them through the Holy Spirit can be used through them to encourage and help you grow and you them or the one another's? Do you give any avenue for the one and others to be taking place in the context of those relationships? 
Again, the Spirit works through them. He works through His Word and through His people. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We're going to have that memorized by the end of this morning. Beloved, if you would see any great thing done for God, if you would see anything done for God, then it will only happen by His Spirit. And if we would see God move in Calvary Bible Church, it's only going to happen by His Spirit. Now, some may ask at this point, okay, well, how? I got the point. How? How do we rely on the Holy Spirit to do His work? Well, Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 commands us to walk by the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 commands us to not quench the Spirit. I might add Ephesians 4.29 to not uh, grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know what these mean, what those commands mean, means specifically in regards to dependence on the Holy Spirit, then you have a homework assignment this week. We have plenty of resources on our website and sermons and classes for you to begin digging in. If you're serious about depending on the Spirit, then you will make it your aim to really seek to understand what these verses mean. I'll get you started. Let me just say this. To depend on the Holy Spirit is to commune with God by meditating on His Word, by continually praying to Him, and by being with His people. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Those are the means in which it happens. To commune with God in meditation, not just reading, meditation and prayer, and to be with His people. And remember, beloved, even in this pursuit to depend on the Spirit, you must depend on the Spirit. (laughs) So ask Him for help. Ask Him for help. In fact, I want to do that right now. Let me, let me go to the Lord. Lord, grant us the desire to depend on Your Spirit and teach us how to do that. Lord, show us specifically in our lives where we are a hindrance to His work, where we are relying on ourselves. Show us as individuals and as a church. Give us, as, as Paul prays in Ephesians, Lord, give us a spirit of uh, wisdom and understanding, revelation and the knowledge of you, and, and strengthen us with power by your Spirit in the inner man. Lord, do a work in us so that we, with the Zechariah's vision, what that truth could be said of us, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Do a work in us, please. Amen. Well, we've only made it through half the chapter. Um, Time's running out, but I want us to look briefly at the second message that we see here in verses 8 to 14. It's connected to, it's related to the first one. The first message, again, prompts the question of who you're relying on. The second one prompts the question of, do you see the big picture? We know from verses 18 through 14 that we know that these form a second message here because of that first word in verse 8. Most English translations Translated as also, or then, or moreover, or and. But in the Hebrew, that first word is literally, and it came to be. It was often used as a discourse marker, as a, something that you would see in a narrative when there was a change in the speaker, or in the event, or the setting, or, or in the theme, what was being communicated. And that's the word that we have here. And the phrase that follows it, the word of the Lord came to me, is another indicator that, that this is another message that is forthcoming. 
The second message that's given in these verses appears to be coming from another speaker. Some say it's Zechariah. But if you'll notice in verse 11, it says, Then I answered and said to him, Zechariah is uh, the one relating this chapter, and he's been speaking in the first person. So if, if he's the new speaker in verses 9 and 10, then verse 11 would make him appear to be somewhat schizophrenic as he's talking to himself then, I guess. But no, he's speaking to someone else. He's responding to someone else who is speaking in verses 9 and 10. So it can't be Zechariah. Some say the speaker, verses 9 and 10, is still the interpreting angel who had been speaking to Zechariah previously and the verses before that. But notice at the end of verse 9, it says there, He has sent me to you. That phrase, that you there at the end is plural in Hebrew. Which indicates that he's, it would be addressed to a group of people. But the interpreting angel, his mission has been through these visions to speak directly to Zechariah. And then Zechariah would take that message to the people. So it's not likely the interpreting angel either. Now, if it's not the interpreting angel, if it's not Zechariah, then who could it be speaking here? We've seen him before, right? The angel of the Lord. In fact, the key there is in that phrase in verse 9, where he gives a statement that the temple will be completed in Zerubbabel's day. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. That's something he repeated three times in the third vision in chapter 2. The Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The angel of the Lord is likely the one that is speaking here and it would make sense because this latter half the second message in Zechariah 4 is primarily focused uh, has significant messianic overtones we've seen often in both Haggai and Zechariah that that as well as in this second message here it again reiterates to the people of Judah that this building project this building project is part of a much bigger picture It's part of a greater purpose in God's plan for Israel's history and also for the history of the world. We see this in two ways here. The first is God's excitement at the completion of the temple in verses 9 and 10. And the second is in the meaning of those two olive trees in verses 11 and 14. Look at verse 9 where he declares that the temple will be completed soon because he says Zerubbabel will be the one that will finish it. He's the one that did the foundation. He's the one that's going to finish the temple. It will happen in his lifetime. And by the way, Ezra 6 tells us that it did get finished. And actually in four years, not seven. And notice in verse 10, there's a rather interesting remark that he makes when he says rhetorically, who has despised the the day of small things? What did he mean by that? Why did he say it? Apparently, there were some there who did not see the significance of this temple project, who who saw this as not that big of a deal. Haggai 2, verse 3 reminds us that there were some who believed this new temple, it's going to pale in comparison to Solomon's. Why bother building it? And the altar was there, so we're able to, to perform most of the requirements of the sacrificial system. And so why bother finishing off the whole building? It just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. In fact, that was the prevailing attitude up until this point in time for those 16 years when they weren't working on the project. But notice in verse 10, how did God feel about this temple building? How did he feel about this project? We see it in the next phrase there in verse 10. These seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The word for plumb line there is uh, literally the a tin stone or perhaps a separation stone. It, it could mean the uh, the weight that hangs at the end of a plumb line that they would use for measurements and, and construction. Or it could mean the separation stone or the a special stone, the final stone being put on the temple. But either interpretation, 
points to the fact the project's being completed, that it's being built. These seven here are a reference to the eyes of the Lord, mentioned at the end of verse 10. It's a figurative expression, seven being the number of completeness, carries this idea, the eyes of the Lord, which it says sees to and fro over all the earth, that they, he sees everything, right? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And as he's looking over the entire earth and as he focuses his attention on Jerusalem and as he centers it upon the Temple Mount and he sees that temple being completed by his people, the physical temple back in Zechariah's day, as he looks at that work being done, what's his response? It says these, these seven eyes will be glad. The word is rejoice. God is pleased. He is happy with this building project. But, but Why? Why would that really matter to him? It's a physical structure. He didn't need a temple to dwell in, right? Paul said that. Solomon said that. No temple could contain him. He doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands. So what's the big deal about this building that eventually was going to be destroyed again anyway by the Romans about 600 years later? What's the point? Why would this project and its completion bring him joy? That's an important place on this planet. That very soil is going to become sacred soil when the Holy One is going to be walking upon it one day. That that temple that they were building was a pointer, a sign to a future temple that the Messiah Himself will build in His kingdom and will reign from. The King of Kings will dwell there and on His throne He will reign over the earth on that very spot. And so them completing this temple is a picture and a sign and, and directing their attention to that truth that's one day going to happen in fact remember what the angel of the lord said here he said when this temple gets built then you will know the lord of hosts has sent me the messiah says this is a a sign an indication of what was going to happen in the future what is it will happen and so we can be reminded that that any work for god that you do that any service you render him that anything you do to to, for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of Christ, anything that you do to accomplish for His bride, His body, His church. In these things God rejoices, no matter how little they may appear to you. From sharing the gospel with a friend, to being a testimony before your children, to supporting missionaries, to remembering the persecuted church around the world, to serving God's people in His church, to speaking His word into one another's lives, to praying for one another. All of these things, don't see any of them as insignificant or unimportant or not worth your time or that God doesn't notice them. His seven eyes, I guess that's ten. There's seven, okay? They're not literal, it's figurative. But His eyes are looking upon the earth and any small thing done in the name of His Son for the sake of His kingdom is not insignificant. That little prayer that you pray every day for a lost child or a lost neighbor or a lost friend. That little conversation that you have where you plant the seeds and and bring up the gospel. That little work of service that you do for someone in need in the body, a fellow brother or sister, a child of God. Those are not small things. This temple, in the grand scheme of all the buildings that have ever been built on the earth, this one that they finished you know, it wasn't on the top ten list in terms of its beauty or size or prominence. But it was number one on God's list. The world saw it as not that big a deal. Even God's people didn't see it as that significant. But God did. Because it was work that was pointing to the day His Son would come and reign from that very place. And His Son matters. 
And what his son desires matters. So anything you do for him matters. But remember, it's to be done by the power of his spirit, right? Just as we were told earlier. Be encouraged. God's spirit will gladly empower you to do these things. I'm reminded again of, I thought John Piper put it so well when he said that you are building more than you can see. He's right. All these things, they all draw attention to His Son and exalt His Son. As we approach verse 11, we see there's still something eating at Zechariah. There's still something in this vision. One part of it, he can't get out of his head. There's the, the lampstand and the bowl and the pipes and, and, and the oil. and I think he gets all those things, but there's one part of the vision that he still doesn't grasp. So he asks in verse 11, what are these olive trees? What are they doing here? Maybe he thought, well, now that the angel of the Lord is here speaking, maybe he will give me the specific answer because the interpreting angel sure didn't tell me. It turns out Zechariah's intuition about these two trees being important is spot on. For they are related not only to this vision, but to all the visions, really. They represent and symbolize something that is directly connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Lord of hosts had indeed sent him. But before, before Zechariah even gets the answer to that first question, he, he asks a second one. His, his curiosity isn't just on the trees themselves, but they're focused on a particular part of each of those trees, to what he calls the olive branches. Literally, the word there is ear, like an ear of corn. You know, it has many kernels on it, much grain. I think that's the picture here. He's focusing in on the the cluster of olives contained on each tree, which is directly feeding those pipes that are going into the bowl, which the oil is then going into the lamps. And he says, "What what are those clusters there? What are they doing there? He understood these are important. They symbolize something important. And then he probably experiences a deja vu moment here because the angel of the Lord initially responds the same way interpreting angel did he said don't don't you know what these are he said no that's why i'm asking the question but this time zechariah gets his answer verse 14 he hears these words these are the two anointed ones standing by the lord of the earth that word anointed ones is literally sons of oil it's a a very a picture of those characterized by oil, those characterized by being anointed. And there were only two offices in the Old Testament that were anointed by oil. We've seen one of them, the king, also the priests. Exodus tells us they were to be anointed, consecrated, set apart for a specific task by oil, by the pouring of oil. Charles, Charles Feinberg, Old Testament scholar, says that practically all expositors see that these two trees, now note this, and he's right. Everybody I looked at all agreed. And this doesn't happen real often. <laughs> but all the, all the commentators, expositors agree, even, the, um, even Jewish rabbis agree that these two trees represent the anointed offices of priest and king. And those olive clusters then are likely focusing on specific individuals in those offices. And in Zechariah's day, those two individuals were Joshua and Zerubbabel. It would be through them that the Holy Spirit would work to bring about the building of His temple, to bring about the restoration of His people. 
Later on in Revelation, there are two witnesses in Revelation 11. They are also described as two olive trees standing before the Lord of the earth in Revelation 11.4. Those two individuals will speak powerfully for God, representing God on earth. Some believe actually that they will be a former priest and king. Some have theorized perhaps their identity as such. But they, like Joshua and Zerubbabel, are mere men. They are imperfect agents, imperfect representatives. They're merely pointers. They're pointers to the one who is the only perfectly holy high priest, the one who is the only all-sovereign king. They're a pointer to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, at the end of these visions in chapter 6 of Zechariah, Zechariah mentions the branch, the Messiah, who will sit on the throne as priest and king. That's where these visions are aiming. That's the whole point of this temple project. And these two olive trees, which are empowering them to do the work where the Holy Spirit is being sent from, he's infusing them to do the work to enable them to finish this temple, they represent the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Five centuries after this vision, Jesus would become a man. And Jesus would live the perfect life. And Jesus would serve in a role as our faithful high priest because he lived through life without sinning once and died on a cross on our behalf. And then God raised him from the dead. And through that, he secured the right to those offices of high priest and king. So in this last verse in Zechariah of his fifth vision, we've come really full circle as the attention is focused upon Christ. We've been talking about the need to depend on the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit does the work. Here at the end of this chapter, we see the one through whom the Spirit would work and did work. Acts 10.38 again, it says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And we remember, what is it Jesus said in John 14? He said, I must leave because then I will send the Comforter. So the Holy Spirit who empowered Christ, He would send to empower and enable His people. And then in John 16, it says the Spirit works to glorify and exalt the Son. So in closing this morning, I want to ask you the single most important question you will ever have to consider. And that is, do you know this high priest and king? Have you confessed your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your trust in him? Are you a worshiper of Jesus Christ? He's the only one who can forgive you. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who has paid for your sins. He's the only one who can fit you for heaven. Jesus is the only one who truly loves you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so much here in this vision. Lord, so much to think about and ponder. God, work in us today, this week, to really evaluate our, our focus. Lord, are we truly dependent on You, on Your Spirit to do Your work in our lives? Are we truly recognizing that we're part of a bigger picture and the work that we do by the power of the Spirit for the sake of the Son, that, that this is all that matters, that this is why we are here, that, that this is what brings You joy. Oh, Lord, work in us, especially in these days, to be a God-dependent church and God-dependent people. Lord, to not be distracted by so many things that distract us, just like there were so many things that distracted 
people in Zerubbabel's day. Lord, work in us to be your people who exalt Christ in every way. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to close um, by reading one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians 3. So if you'd uh, please stand with me. He says in Ephesians 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And it all begins with his prayer that with power by the Holy Spirit. Help us understand these things. Amen? Amen. Amen.